In rural healthcare, it is essential to have support advocating for your needs and developing policies that are helpful to rural hospitals while influencing policies that could be hurtful instead. So, how do rural hospitals ensure that issues important to them are addressed through effective policies? With involvement in quality advocacy programs, direct influence in policy development, and strength in numbers. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 73 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, we talk about advocacy for rural hospitals almost every episode. I guess that's why we call it Rural Health Rising, right? right. And part of that is we have to advocate. It doesn't matter if we're advocating uh, to state, local, federal governments, advocacy groups. It doesn't matter. Um, we're advocating, and that is something just, I think, Uh, It's a foundation of what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, obviously we're going to be looking today at something a little different, and it's policy work and advocacy directly that impacts small rural hospitals from our state association. Right. And I think that's very exciting because at the state level, you know, we learned that all forms, you know, of government are local. And we also know that all forms of advocacy are local. And I I can say firsthand that our relationship with MHA mm-hmm. is probably more strengthened than our relationship with any other federal agency because right. we're dealing with them on statewide issues. Right. Um, and so I'm excited today for this opportunity. Yes, we are talking with someone who, uh, as you kind of hinted at, works every day to advocate for small hospitals right here in Michigan. That's right. Our guest today is Lauren Lapine, Director of Small and Rural Hospitals and Policy Programs at the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. So welcome to Rural Health Rising, Lauren. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, JJ. I'm really excited to be with uh, both of you today talking about all things rural. Yes, love it. Okay, so to start, Lauren, (laughs) why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at MHA? Happy to. Um, So I just actually have my one-year anniversary at MHA. So uh, I've I've been here for a short time, but it seems like a long time in all of the best ways possible. Um, Congrats. Thank you. So I came to to the MHA after spending about six years um, locally as well at the Michigan Public Health Institute. Mm. Um, my background is in public health. I have a, a master's in public health. And just this week, actually, I started my um, doctorate in public health that will wow. take me the next four years to, yes. to achieve. So um, very excited about that. And um, I was brought to MHA to really focus um, entirely on our small and rural hospitals um, and we we obviously focused on our rural members um, inherently in the in the past across all of our staff, um, but this specific position was really carved out to um, have someone specifically working across all uh, sectors of the MHA, field engagement, policy, advocacy, um, to be engaging with our small and rural members, and especially be um, developing policy that supports rural healthcare. Um, and also uh, be able to advocate on behalf of our rural members specifically. So I spend the majority of my time um, going on tours and visits um, out in the field with our rural members. Um, And then the other half of the time is spent working at our downtown office closely with our legislature um, to develop legislation and policies that support our rural members. Um, So that's kind of the the high-level background about my, my role here at the MHA. So Lauren... You were in public health mm-hmm. during a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. in an emergency. And so that had to be interesting for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so can you share with us a little bit about what you did uh, in public health? Yeah, so um, it was interesting. When I was at Michigan Public Health Institute, I led a team that was focused on public health assessment and planning. Um, And so that required a lot of cross-sector collaboration in terms of developing Michigan State Health Assessment, Michigan State Mm. Plan on Aging, Michigan's Maternal and Child Child Health um, Needs Assessment. Um, So really looking at the the health and well-being of populations um, throughout the life course. And COVID, obviously, as you alluded to, really kind of threw a wrench in those plans. And we had to pivot um, a lot of the, Mm. the prevention and planning work that mm-hmm. local health departments and hospitals were doing had to be put on hold to be able to immediately respond to the pandemic. So I, when I came to the MHA, it was in um, the summer of 2021. And mm-hmm. it was interesting because when I started, I mean, we were, we were putting out fires every day, I would say. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of our members at both the, the state and the federal level. So it was kind of a change coming from maybe traditional governmental public health um, to the healthcare space. Um, but uh, the kind of core training that I had in the tenants of public health really um, prepared me well for the the policy work that I would be leading at the yeah. MHA. You know, and I shared with Rachel, and we've often talked about this, uh, the communication that we received during COVID from you Mm-hmm. Uh, in your team at MHA, including Brian Peters, daily mm-hmm. updates, sometimes even two or three updates a day, mm-hmm. uh, was second to none. I speak with colleagues across the country. Rachel does as well. Uh, I feel that MHA in the work that you did specifically and the work that Brian Peters did uh, was incredible at keeping hospitals informed. I think, Rachel, you would agree with that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was something, especially in the beginning. So maybe a, a little bit before um, you got to MHA, I do. I remember I was like every day looking for that email every day at the end of the day to figure out, okay, what is new? What do I need yeah. to know about? I was kind of managing our, um, you know, making sure that we were covering what are the new orders that are coming from the state? What oh, are yeah. the new rules and regulations yeah. we have to follow? Do we have all the right signs up? You know, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, throughout the pandemic, that just became increasingly more important. It did. And, and so, you know, hats off to MHA, to you for guiding us, small rural hospitals, you know, uh, as we're out here trying to navigate here on the front lines, uh, dealing with these significant issues in our community, still trying to run, obviously, the day-to-day operations of a hospital, engaging in the same activities, and then trying to figure out how do you navigate all of the federal and state rules. MHA stepped up to the plate, and I want to congratulate and thank you uh, for your advocacy works on behalf of small hospitals. So thank you. That's, um, very, that's very kind of you, and I'd be remiss to say that I think we're very blessed under um, under Brian's leadership to have a Absolutely. great team. Um, we have a, a phenomenal advocacy shop and policy team and our communications team, to your point. I mean, they they can put out some some really high level communications about things that are not that interesting when we're talking about <laughs> rules and regulations. So they've, they've done a great job. So thank you for the kind words. Absolutely. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why. And we do this on every episode to get to know our guests just a little bit better. So here's what we want to know. We want to know what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? I think that's a it's an excellent question and one that um, when I first think about it, I really love a good problem. I love a good challenge. 
And um, one of the things that I've enjoyed about public health and healthcare is that we're talking about some really messy challenges that you have to work through with lots of different partners and lots of different agencies. Um, and I I enjoy getting out of bed every day and knowing that it's going to be, there's going to be some other hot item to work on on behalf of our members. Um, and I really view my work as kind of being a, a behind the scenes um, job of sorts, um, trying to make it easier for the, the healthcare workers um, on the ground that are providing um, critical care to patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what's what's appealing to me is really the opportunity to to be involved in really important conversations and have a seat at the table for um, finding some really meaningful solutions to improve healthcare. Excellent. So let's talk about you know what you have seen rural hospitals dealing with because there are all kinds of different issues. Of course, um, some are um, you know new things as the industry changes. Some are just items that have never been addressed before. But what are some of the challenges you've seen that they really can only be addressed through policy, but there currently is no policy or or any, you know, um, law or regulations around that issue? Not necessarily, because we'll also talk about are there policies that have been in place and have been negative or need to be changed? But what about those issues where right now there's just nothing to help support rural hospitals to deal with some of these issues? What are those issues in particular? Yeah, um, when I when I think about this question, Rachel, one of the things that comes to mind for me is we've been working over the last, oh, I don't know, six, seven months um, with various state agencies um, to prepare our state um, for the rollout of the new rural emergency hospital designation. Yeah. And um, I'm sure you're you're both familiar with this. Um, This is a a new designation at the federal level that comes out of CMS um, that is um, really trying uh, to keep rural health care in communities. Mm -hmm. And a rural emergency hospital would not be a a great fit um, for for every hospital, but it's really meant to be um, designed for rural hospitals that are really struggling. Um, and so we've been working, the association has been working really closely with the, the Department of Health and Human Services and the um, Licensing and Regulatory Affairs Agency, as well as the Michigan Center for Rural Health, um, to design legislation that will make the application process for any hospital that's interested in converting to a rural emergency hospital um, as seamless as possible. Um for a little bit of background for listeners, a, a rural emergency hospital is a new um, hospital designation type as of January 1st, 2023, that um, allows rural hospitals to see um, an increase in their reimbursement at the federal level. So they would see a, a 105% reimbursement rate for Medicaid and Medicare um, if they were to give up all of their inpatient beds. Um, and only provide outpatient services. So this is a significant change um, Mm -hmm. for how some of our uh, critical access um, hospitals have been functioning in the past Mm -hmm. and won't be the right fit for for all members. Um, But we do want to have some uh, a process and legislation in place that if a hospital gets to the point of wanting to convert to an REH, they have all the tools at their disposal to do so. Um, So we've been working with the department to work through various licensure issues, um, certificate of need challenges, um, uh, emergency management transfer agreements. Um, there's a there's a lot that we've had to build from the ground up 
um, with really no guidance at the federal level because states are able to go about this in whatever manner makes the most sense for them um, because it's highly dependent on the types of laws and regulations that states already have in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for our state specifically, we will be introducing a bill um, for the, the next set of session days um, where we will um, hopefully get the legislature to pass um, this this new piece of legislation that will enable um, any interested hospitals in our state to become an REH um, in, with the goal of keeping rural health care uh, in a community. So that's that's just one piece, I think, that comes to mind when you um, kind of when you ask about policies that don't yet exist, where we are building some of this from the ground up. You know, Lauren, do you have a sense of what that number may look like for Michigan? How many hospitals yeah. may actually be switching? Yep. So it really varies. I've been involved in a lot of conversations, I would say, at the national level. And there are other states that ha- that anticipate having quite a few um, hospitals uh, converting. At mm-hmm. this time, um, I would say MHA and the, the Center for Rural Health are aware of only one um, that has expressed interest. And that's a hospital that... Um, uh, that has been um, looking for additional funding and sustainability for the last couple of years, um, and so so we are we are ready to to partner with that member to um, support them in, them in converting to an REH. The other interesting piece I would say with this um, at the federal level, one of the requirements, given all that we learned with COVID, is that states must be able to um, allow an REH to convert back. Um, to their oh. previous hospital oh, status. Good. Yes. Good. If they learn that being in that being an REH really isn't working for them, they need to be able to convert back to a PPS or um or critical access hospital, which is great, but also requires some significant uh strategy at the state level to ensure that mm-hmm. that um hospitals could bring their inpatient beds back online. So, so Lauren, so the REH designation, is it obviously each of the states have to opt in for that, right? The mm-hmm. legislature has to approve it. And then in, in regards to going back, um, what, I mean, do they have to give up the CON? Do, I mean, is it a, to, I guess, decommission themselves? Is it, is it pretty lengthy process? And yeah, I wonder how different that is than if they were to be, you know, starting from scratch yeah. as if the hospital never, never existed, existed before. Yeah, That's a, those are those are great questions and ones that I would say we are still working through. Okay. Obviously, mm-hmm. some states don't have CON. Um, Michigan is is unique in that. Um, so we're working with with a um, CON commission to design, you know, a strategy that would enable r- rural emergency hospitals to convert back. Um, we are also tracking with the American Hospital Association and the National Rural Health Association, um, taking a look at how other states um, are uh, planning to roll this out so that we can learn from from that from their experiences as well. Um, but I think a, a lot of this we really are building and will anticipate needing um, to, to make some changes to um, as we continue to, to learn from this from this model. So you're building the plane as you fly it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well. Well, we all had to learn to do that not too long right. ago. Right. We're all we? pros <laughs> at that. Thanks to COVID, yes. we all know how to build a plane and fly. Yeah. Well, you know, in in respect to the policy programs that you're involved with and the work that you do daily at MHA, um, you know, have you seen policies in the past uh, that have directly disadvantaged 
rural hospitals, you know, and, and I know you're a fierce advocate for rural and I appreciate it because we have to have someone, you know, defending rural hospitals. We do uh, because we're unique and you know that better probably than most. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess if you have seen those um, policies that have created a disadvantage, um, how difficult is it to change the existing policies compared to just creating new ones? And I guess in the environment that you live in daily, you're looking at that every day. Yeah, yeah, we definitely try to review any new proposals or legislation um, from the lens of some of our our biggest systems like Spectrum and Beaumont and also some of our our smallest uh, rural hospitals, um, which can pose challenges sometimes um, given just the the difference in size and scope of of certain hospitals and and systems. Um, I would say one of the things that that comes to mind for me on this question is around um, staffing um, and workforce flexibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that uh, staffing is obviously a, a concern right now across the board, um, but rural hospitals have been trying out kind of innovative models um, to staffing for many years and uh, before before the pandemic even. So Absolutely. I was trying I was trying to think of some legislation that that specifically benefited our rural members and that um, that the rural advocacy was a was a key aspect of. And what comes to mind for me legislation um, that was successfully passed around um, certified registered nurse anesthetists. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a a piece of legislation that um, we had significant, this took years, but we had significant buy-in from our rural members Mm -hmm. saying that we need more flexibilities um, when it comes to allowable staffing models in our facilities and allowing CRNAs to practice at the top of their license without the the supervision and oversight of a, of a physician um, was was really influential for some of our members that are using CRNAs in that in that different way. Um, we um, are also working on legislation right now um, that expands the scope of practice for um, nurse practitioners and physician ex- assistants to allow them to practice at the the top of their license yes. um, in ways that they haven't done before. And I would say that those pieces of legislation are are very much, we view those through the lens of how they can benefit our rural members that Mm -hmm. um, historically have experienced challenges recruiting and retaining um, uh, certain types of of healthcare workers. So anything where we can provide more latitude and flexibility to, to rural members when it comes to staffing models is something that we've been really trying to do, especially over the last few years as we've been forced um, to become more creative um, with the the finite resources and manpower that we have at our disposal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. And I think there are probably policies out there, too. You know, like that, for example, it's not like the way that, um, you know, staffing models and, and licensures and all that were set up for anesthesiology was designed to disadvantage rural hospitals. No. But that doesn't mean it didn't do that, you know, right? It's not necessarily that policies are intentionally created right. for that purpose, but that ends up being the unintended consequences. Does, yeah. We saw that with a lot of different things um, related to COVID. But let's talk a little bit about health equity, especially with your, you know, experience and background in public health. Um, I know this is an important issue and it's happening more and more. It's becoming more of a conversation um, across the industry right now, and especially with COVID, because that also highlighted some of the health disparities um, in in our country. And so, you know, from your perspective, 
what is the importance of health equity and maybe a bit of a kind of a definition or descriptor of that because it probably means different things to different people on some level. Mm-hmm. And how do rural Americans fit into this conversation? I'm hearing more now than maybe a year ago about rural being referenced when health equity is being discussed. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And um, I think you're absolutely right, Rachel. When when I think about health equity, um, there's a really cool graphic that always comes to mind for me with uh, that came from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that has um, you've probably seen it, but like three um, three little kids that are standing to try to see over a fence to see a, a baseball game, and um, the the shortest um, mm-hmm. child needs the tallest box to stand on, and the tallest child needs the shortest box to stand on, and um, from my perspective, equity is really um, designing policies and programs and procedures and environments um, that support the health and well-being for for all, um, regardless of your race, gender, ethnicity, et cetera. And when I say et cetera, I think um, what you're speaking to about hearing us, hearing folks talk more about rural as a as in some ways a, a type of disparity. When right. I hear true, people talk true. about, I mean, what location can be a disparity in terms of your mm-hmm. Um, your access to healthcare, your access mm-hmm. to healthy foods, the closest grocery store that you have. Um, so in my role, um, when I'm in conversations at the state level, I tend to be that like parrot in the background that's like, well, what about the UP? What, ab- yeah, what about right. the thumb? What about right. these rural areas where not only are they sometimes geographically disadvantaged, um, but what about the areas that tend to have older Americans living in them? We know that Rural areas predominantly have um, higher rates of of older Americans and many times poorer um, individuals living there as well. So we have to look at um, health equity um, also kind of through a, a rural lens and the impact that um, that that placemaking and one's uh, um, home uh, where they live, what that has on their overall health and well-being. Um, so I think there's there's very much a, a push. Um, to think about what kind of disparities individuals that might reside in a in a rural area might face. And I also try to counter that with just because you live in a rural area doesn't mean that that you are any uh, less well off than anyone else. Um, mm-hmm. but it it can it can be an an instance um, that that can happen just based on geography. Um, so I think that's something that that we're starting to kind of work through um, a little bit more directly as a um, as the, a healthcare sector. Um, and mm-hmm. the the MHA is very much trying to to bring that um, the focus on on rural to the light. Yeah, and definitely you are. Uh, let's so let's segue into something because we know, that rural hospitals um, are typically the second or third largest employers. In some places, they're even the largest employer in those respective communities. Uh, And they are economic drivers. We know Mm -hmm. that. They absolutely generate, you know, millions of dollars back into the local economy uh, and obviously keep the workforce moving along. And, you know, when we look at hospitals and the reason we started this podcast several years ago was for the purpose of highlighting the critical nature of rural hospitals and what role they play in the economies and well-being of those respective communities. And so we know firsthand by just looking down the road that when a rural hospital closes, so goes the community. You know, their their economics suffer, uh, the, the, the opportunity to have good health care is lessened, uh, poor health outcomes as a result. I mean, all of these things. But when, when so you look, 
look at that, health outcomes, um, obviously great disadvantage. And then you look at the economy in those respective communities. And Rachel and I have talked about nearly 140 hospitals in America since 2010 have closed. And if you look at those respective communities, uh, they're suffering. And they're suffering economically. Um, So understanding, as you do, the critical nature that rural hospitals play in keeping you know, the community economically sound, why do you think these issues and subsequent policies, why don't they get more attention? Why aren't we hearing more about this? Because I am, I'm rural, I get that, but I'm alarmed uh, when we speak with congressional leaders or even state leaders who don't necessarily understand the impact of rural healthcare and hospitals on their local economies. I, I I don't know what to do about that. You know, so why do you think they don't get enough attention? It's an excellent question. And I I really think, and, and JJ, you are kind of a, a gold star when it comes to this. Um, I think that rural, my experience at least, is our small and rural members many times are spread so thin, like you just described. They are continuously asked with the changing healthcare environment to do more with less. And we continue to try to, to to lessen the impacts of that. But as they're stretched to do more with less, their bandwidth continues to get smaller and smaller. And mm-hmm. so things like um, participating in advocacy efforts, calling your lawmakers, bringing lawmakers in for tours, sometimes those are, are more challenging to fit in when you are trying to keep things like OB services in your yeah. community. Um, and the two things go hand in hand. So I would say from just my short time at MHA even, um, when we are able to to really engage our members directly in advocacy efforts, that is huge. Um, it's it's one of the reasons that we are, are launching our first Rural Advocacy Day at the end of September, um, because we we very much want to support our rural members in getting in front of in front of lawmakers, mm-hmm. sharing their challenges, sharing the importance of a rural healthcare and keeping hospitals within their respective constituents communities because they're such important economic drivers. Um, so I, I think to answer your question, it's it's really twofold. Uh, rural healthcare has been has been changing for many years, given the yeah. the push to value um, value based medicine and the um, the the changes in terms of um, volume based care mm-hmm. um, and. Mm-hmm. Um, as rural hospitals continue to, to work to address um, some of those changes, some of the policy and advocacy work can be really hard to fit in as well. Um, so the, the more that we as an association can be supportive of um, making those connections, making meaningful connections, helping get lawmakers within the four walls of our member hospitals, those are the things that are that are incredibly, incredibly critical. I can go talk to a lawmaker all day um, about uh, a hospital in uh, one of our most rural areas, and it will not have the significant impact that even a a ten minute walkthrough of the of the hospital and the facility would have on that lawmaker. Um, so we are we are trying hard to create more ways to um, to support uh, those connections with our rural members and our elected officials. So, and I want to ask you a question. Um... You travel throughout the state of Michigan to rural hospitals. Uh, you have witnessed some pretty compelling stories um, uh, in communities where I know for me, I've had colleagues look at me and say, 
JJ, what what do you think we can do? What what suggestions would you have? And, and I guess I want to ask you that question. Someone's listening to this today. Uh, one of our counterparts, rural hospital, Michigan, across the country, doesn't matter. What is the starting point for raising awareness in your mind? Um, what you know, to your point, our bench strength. It's not very deep. You know, Rachel has seven now, seven job titles. Uh, oh, do I, did I get three more? Well, <laughs> See, I have so many job titles, I don't even know what they gonna all are. We're going to talk tomorrow. But, you <laughs> okay, know, perfect. So she's taking care of the, you know, auxiliary and, and volunteers. And then on the same token, she's putting out our press releases and advocating. So uh, we, we know that. You know that. You know that we don't have executive vice presidents. It's tough. Um, but someone's listening today, and they haven't been able to figure this piece out. Um, what what's the starting point in advocacy in your mind? Yeah, I would say the the first thing that comes to mind for me is really um, develop good connections with your colleagues and counterparts. Um, mm-hmm. I I think that at least in my experience, our rural members are incredibly close and strong and willing to collaborate. And as simple as it sounds, the ability to put out an email and say, hey, 10 rural CEOs in Michigan, we're seeing this issue in this area of the state. Let's get on a call and, and brainstorm and talk about solutions. That is that is huge. And that's a benefit, I would say, that rural hospitals have compared to larger systems where it might take a lot longer to get on someone's on someone's calendar um, or get the the space and bandwidth to have those discussions. So for for people that are that are listening to this, I would say really spend time developing meaningful relationships and partnerships with people that are doing the the work that you're doing. Um, because it's it's hard to make friends when you need friends. And I think we we saw that a lot during the during the pandemic when people had to um, work with new sectors or or folks that they hadn't before. The individuals that had really strong relationships in their hospitals and their communities tended to be the ones that were the most successful in meeting the emerging needs. Um, so it it all goes back to I think what you learn and what you learn in kindergarten, which is yeah. to to continuously um, make friends and network and share stories and collaborate. Um, and that kind of relationship building translates pretty easily into the advocacy space. Being able to talk about your talk about your challenges and also propose solutions um, is is incredibly influential um, when you're when you're working to to advocate for rural healthcare. And in Michigan, obviously, we have the privilege of working with the Michigan Hospital Association, and you at MHA can also connect. Uh, you have a rule council. You've mm-hmm. got a quality collaborative. I mean, you have all of these breakout committees, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's an opportunity. So if you're listening uh, today to the podcast and you're thinking to yourself, you're in Michigan, or maybe you're in another state, and we want to encourage you, reach out to your association. Right, They can be powerful. Rachel, mm-hmm. you've seen it. I've seen it. How many times have we gone to MHA and said, we need advocacy in this area? Yep. Just yep. this week. We have a question about, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. LVA, yep. you know, low volumes adjustment. Mm-hmm. You know, we want advocacy right. in that area. Right. Uh, that's an $800,000 loss to Hillsdale. That would be devastating mm-hmm. if if that is not extended. So we go to our association and say, please lobby for us. Right. And understanding that they're lobbying for all size systems, but right. that's why they have someone like Lauren 
And so if you're listening today, I'd encourage you to reach out to your state association uh, and find a partnership there. Also, you know, I, I guess we just talked about what are the disadvantages, you know, that you have seen. But all right, why don't you share with us some things that you and your team are doing to develop policies that will help rural hospitals? Uh, and I, I guess, you know, where does that start? How do you go about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would say one of the things that we are that we are working to to protect and build out right now is the the 340B program. Um, we have seen some uh, threats from pharma um, to uh, some of the language in the current legislation um, at both the state and federal level um, around 340B programs for hospitals. Um, so we have a we currently actually have an action alert um, on our website for. Um, uh, any hospital in Michigan, um, including smaller rural members that are that are part of the 340B program, um, because we know that so much of that um, that prescription drug pricing program allows for um, hospitals to use the savings that they have from that they generate from prescription drugs. Um, much of those savings are reinvested into the community, um, into various public health programming. So mm-hmm. we actually recently um, the MHA had a had a podcast similar to this. Um, where we sat down with the CEO of uh, Mackinac Straits um, up in uh, the Upper Peninsula, and their CEO, Karen Cheeseman, spoke to um, how they've been able to use the savings that have been generated from the 340B um, uh, drug pricing program to uh, have the only pharmacy in um, the, the county open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and uh, if the savings from the 340B program were eliminated, that would directly uh, impact that rural area and access to um, to routine pharmaceuticals in their their yep. community. So that's one that we're that we're very actively working on. Um, we are also um, working right now um, to address some of the challenges that our members are encountering when it comes to um, transferring patients uh, out of the acute care setting into long term care um, and skilled nursing facilities. Um, we are we are obviously seeing significant um, workforce shortages across the healthcare um, and uh, nursing home sector. So we are working on um, designing some new policies and procedures um, that will hopefully make um, discharging a patient to a, a lower level of care um, easier um, and more seamless during a time when we are experiencing um, those kind of severe staffing shortages. Um, so, so that's another uh, piece that we continue to um, advocate on. The last and final piece that I would speak to is um, we are, uh, it comes as, as no surprise to anyone that behavioral health mm. um, is, a, is a crisis in our state and uh, across mm-hmm. the country. So um, we are actively working on legislation um, that would uh, both expand um, the number of inpatient beds, uh, inpatient site beds available across our state, um, as well as um, uh, make it easier for our hospitals our emergency department staff to complete initial assessments um, in the ED for behavioral health issues when there's a delay from community mental health. Um, So we have a a bill um, that will uh, be moving forward here shortly um, focused on on that piece. Um, We also continue to advocate for loan um, repayment programs um, because we know that that's um, so important in terms of attracting and retaining um, healthcare workers. And um, we were very pleased to see the department, uh, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, 
um, offer some new loan repayment for behavioral health professionals specifically, um, which uh, was not the case in the, in the past. So there are mm-hmm. there are lots of different efforts in the pipeline right now around behavioral health, um, and we we know that some of those provider shortages specifically um, are in incredibly challenging to address in our our rural areas. Um, so that continues to be one of the the key points that we will advocate for in the the next couple of months and the the years to come, frankly. Well, Lauren, I want to applaud all of your hard work, uh, the efforts that you put forth daily uh, for rural hospitals like Hillsdale. Is It's heartwarming, uh, and I say that with all sincerity. It's, uh, it's encouraging to know we have someone representing us. Uh, we can't get there. We, you know, we can't be at those places. And to have someone like you who is you know, championing the rural hospitals is so important to us. And uh, please know that it is just highly welcomed when we are dealing with issues like you've just explained, where in the mental health environment here in Hillsdale, we have patients waiting a week or two in our emergency department to find placement. And when we're dealing with the population that we are that have no transportation Mm -hmm. in our communities and attracting physicians to rural communities is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So so advocating for loan reimbursement uh, to that is so important. And you're doing this in tandem with about 50 other things Mm -hmm. that the MHA is doing, assisting uh, in, in reviewing policy that pertains to public health. Uh, in healthcare in general, uh, advocating to keep the CON, which we believe in. Uh, we're firm and staunch believers that the CON mm-hmm. process needs to continue. Um, and all of that's happening in tandem with, you know, going and advocating as Brian did and, and myself and Duke Anderson for CRNAs, mm-hmm. you know, to practice at the top of their license. And all of this isn't just we stop, we focus on it, we move to the next. You're doing this in tandem. And I just want to thank you uh, for the dedication that you've displayed yourself. You know, I've been following you for the last year uh, and you have been a fierce advocate. And I'm sure, you know, you're probably uh, as busy, if not busier than than we are here in our hospitals because you, you're you shepherding all of Michigan rural hospitals in your advocacy work. And we're all unique. You know, I have a need that's different than Lily's and different than Tim Johnson's. and uh, But you're, you're speaking on behalf of all of those. So, uh, all of that to say thank you. Thank you for not only joining our program today, but thank you for being a reasonable voice and for advocating for our rural hospitals. And without these rural hospitals, communities surely will die across Michigan. So thank you. Uh, we could spend hours talking to you today, but we unfortunately do not have that time. But we just want to thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising and, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, JJ and Rachel. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and, and talk to you both. Um, one of my my favorite parts of my job truly is being able to talk to the members that are that are doing and leading this work. Um, and uh, I I feel privileged to be able to work with the um, the great rural um, communities and members across our state. So um, we are we are here at the MHA uh, to support you. And as you have needs in the um, advocacy and policy space. We we very much want to hear those and we'll work towards finding, sol- finding solutions. So thank you for all that you're doing, especially during what has been an incredibly tenuous um, few years with, with COVID and, and whatever the new uh, infectious disease of the day is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Well, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. 
So we want to know, Lauren, Mm -hmm. what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Hmm. I think one of my favorite things about rural life, I think I I might have mentioned this, I can't remember earlier, um, is that my family's from the Upper Peninsula, Escanaba and Gladstone. Um, And uh, so I spend quite a bit of um, time, uh, especially during the holidays up in the the, um, Upper Peninsula of our state. And one of my favorite things about um, rural areas um, is I love uh, small town parades which is super <laughs> random. I love the parades and I love like small town fairs. Um, mm-hmm. And so I try to make it a point to get up to Gladstone um, every 4th of July because they have a log rolling competition where they get in the, um, they, they get in the, the river that's right in front of Lake Michigan and um, they bring in log rollers from all across the country. Um, and you sit outside and you <laughs> wow. eat like your um you eat your um elephant ear and you watch oh, log yeah. rolling. And I don't know why. I think it's so much fun. <laughs> so every fourth of July, that's what I look forward to in a, a small town in the UP. That's awesome. Well, I I can't top that. <laughs> no, we don't I have lo- we don't have log races. We have <laughs> outhouse races, but oh. hey, uh <laughs> Lauren, thanks for joining us again today on Rural Health Rising. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.